when something in your collection, you bought it at a time when nobody really cared about it. Nobody knew what it was. So you kind of had this, you know, special thing. And it was kind of like a, if you know, you know type. And you, and you felt a sort of intimacy between that. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening, and please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. As small as the watch world is, there's a lot more collectors out there than you would think. But not all of them necessarily stand out or impress you, subjective to your taste, of course. And then there's Jacqueline. Jacqueline is a collector who took the community for a loop when she popped up on the scene in 2020. And since then, she's taken us along with her as she ebbs and flows through her collection. But as an Ivy League student, how does she find time to collect and co-host her watch podcast, The Waiting List, and make sure she's doing it all with a purpose? Well, as a ceramics collector as well, she takes the same approach to watch collecting as the pottery making process itself. See, with Jacqueline, everything is done with intention but for herself and nobody else. And that's what makes her and her collection so unique. So without further ado, my friend Jacqueline Lee for Collector's Gene Radio. Jacqueline, uh, what a pleasure to have you on Collector's Gene Radio today. Thank you, Cam, for having me. This is my first time using Zencaster, so so it's, uh, it's an also a fresh experience for me. <laughs> Welcome to the good life. <laughs> yeah. I'm so used to recording with, uh, you know, Dan and Lung Lung over Zoom that this is a brand new experience, you know, like we, we love looking at each other and having a laugh, but there's something about, you know, not seeing each other and just hearing each other's voices that kind of relaxes you, puts you into the zone a little bit more. Yeah. You know, I've had a lot of guests ask about recording video and all that stuff and a lot of people aren't comfortable with it, so I didn't want to take that route, you know, with bringing guests on and, right. and whatnot. So, yeah, well, we we certainly when we reach out to guests, we certainly say, "Oh, yeah, everything is over Zoom." Yeah. And uh, now, in retrospect, maybe <laughs> they weren't a hundred percent all for it, but but that's funny to think about now. <laughs> so, friends of mine always ask me who they should follow in the watch world in terms of social media, and you're you're always one of my first recs and. I usually just say she goes to Harvard and she has one of the most incredible taste in watches. And that usually does the trick. <laughs> That's very kind of you. <laughs> and we've chatted quite a bit over the years and it's been so interesting to watch your collection ebb and flow the way that it has. Yeah. I mean, it has changed a lot over the past three years or so, basically over COVID when we yeah. first connected. Yeah. I feel like I always know when you're going to post something crazy because you'll take a little break from posting on Instagram and then you just hit us with something that, that makes me want to cry. <laughs> Is that a pattern? I've never, I've never uh, paid attention to it. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a pattern for sure. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. It's just you know, I try to post every week because for me – it's not just about, I mean, it is about watches, but, but uh, my account is more, I, I see it more as a creative outlet in terms of photography. Absolutely. Um, so, so when, when 
I'm trying to create photos, um, you know, things, a couple of things need to line up first, you know, the watch, you know, if I have a new one or something interesting, I'd like to share. And then the second is also like the weather. Cause I don't use artificial lighting. I, I think, um, the best effect is re- achieved with natural sunlight. And, um, during COVID I was living in Canada. So in Vancouver, it's, it's quite rainy most of the time. So, uh, it's, it's hard to schedule uh, posts when the weather doesn't, um, you know, line up. <laughs> it's quite demanding. Yeah, exactly. But Boston's okay. Boston so far has been okay. It's just, I haven't had time to shoot a lot over the past few months. Can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up? you know, your parents, did they collect anything kind of setting the tone for everybody of, of, you know, where you are at today in terms of your collecting? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I grew up in China and then I moved to Canada in elementary school right before junior high, actually. Um, so I grew up in a family, like we didn't, collecting wasn't like, um, overarching like theme in our family, but, my grandpa, my dad, and I, we always just had an interest in older objects. Like my grandpa, he was a professor um, at a university and he loved collecting old calligraphies and also like coins. But what I found most interesting about his collection, I don't know if he would call it a collection, but you know, the calligraphies, most of them are not in fancy frames or anything. They're actually rolled up. Um, and the paper themselves are, are quite fragile. And so he would always know how to handle them whenever he showed them to me as a kid. And I, w- I would just be amazed by that because to me, I mean, they're extremely like prone to destruction, right? So he was, he had a very soft hand in that regard. Um, my dad, he loved collecting old Zippo lighters and also uh, like older jeeps and 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 motorcycles from world war ii um he he had a few of those sidecar motorcycles so uh he would you know as a kid he would he would put me in the little like the sidecar and and drive me around um so that's That's amazing yeah but but in terms of watches it was not you know nothing like, oh yeah, I had hand-me-downs from my grandparents or my, my parents. Um, nobody really took an interest in watches. Like, I mean, I grew up with people wearing watches around me, but it was never a thing to pay attention to. Yeah. And, and you and I met virtually, virtually, which sounds odd, but we met virtually uh, via Instagram yep. in 2020, I believe, but did watch and, collecting. And, and Clubhouse, I thought. Oh yeah. Maybe it was Clubhouse. Yeah. Very well, possible. it was Instagram first, and then it was Clubhouse. I feel like yeah. we've chatted before. Yeah, we definitely have. But did did watch collecting for you start at that very moment, or was there a period before that where you really started getting into it before it was you know publicized, if you will? So I started collecting. Uh, so I mean, it's still weird to say that term out loud because it wasn't like you know when I started, I didn't have any plan in thought that I, oh, I was going to collect seriously. But, you know, it really became a rather serious thing that I was, you know, paying a lot of my time and attention to, I would say in summer of 2020, so around June. 
Do you remember the first watch you got? Oh, yeah. The first watch that I got was a vintage Rolex. Uh, it was a 6234 pre Daytona. I guess we're recording. Starts. Yeah, I guess we're recording at a great time because of the Watches and Wonders, uh, all the new releases in the Daytonas. Yeah. But yeah, that was my first like vintage watch I bought for myself. And it was probably the worst watch I bought because I, it, it was, I like, I was scammed. Like, it, the condition and everything about that watch was not great. Mm. So that was my first mistake. And I, I think I'm I'm glad that I haven't made many mistakes afterwards. <laughs> From your photos, it doesn't look like there's been any mistakes. <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but vintage Cartier was a huge focus for you when you started collecting. Yes. And still is. That's like one of our uh, uh, mutual interests, right? Vintage Cartier. No doubt. I started buying vintage Cartier in December 2019. So even when before I considered myself like being really serious uh, towards watch collecting. And I don't know when you started collecting, but that was when I kind of, you know, was first introduced to Cartier. And I was intrigued and I was drawn in because it was re- like relatively affordable at the time. I remember, you know, platinum tanks, and Santos's, well, the tank could be bought around $5,000 and the platinum Santos with the salmon dial that everybody is like going crazy for now could be bought under like nine or 10. So, so that was, that was when, you know, yeah, that was when I started and, and that was when I um, acquired some of those now really sought after references. And then when things kind of went crazy, which was in the beginning of 2021, I have to admit, I kind of lost interest because, you know, it used to be this relatively like hidden thing and that we would share with a few people around in your circle. And all of a sudden, everybody were looking uh, for the same references, like the Monopusher Tortue, I remember people went crazy for. Right. And I don't know, like that itch, uh, I kind of lost it. So I took a break from Cartier for about a year. So from like 2021 to 2022, actually like past 2022, because I really like regained that spark this past winter, like this October, November was when I started looking at them again. And I just fell like head over heels once again for, for them. But the feeling is different now. I agree. Before, it was more about the chase and learning about these references. Now it's like, you know, I could be attracted to the most simple, easy to get reference that you don't have to hunt for, that not everybody loves. I could be attracted to that and it's, it's, it's fun again. So, so that's, that's the place I'm at right now with uh, Vintage Cartier. I saw you join the Bain Walk Club, so welcome. Yes, I love it. That's like one of my uh, one of my favorites. It wears so well. You know, it wears so well, but also, if I if I had been offered that watch in 2020, I don't think I would have looked at it a second time. 
as harsh as that sounds, um, because the dial of that watch is not perfect, right? Sure. It, it, it's not pristine. Whereas when I first started, everything I wanted had to be pristine. It had to be condition, condition, condition. And it was kind of like a bug that I had inside me. But something turned when I got back to vintage Cartier collecting like a few months ago. I don't care as much about the condition anymore. I care about the feeling that it brings. And for me, that bang noir, you know, it's it's a London piece. All the London dials were painted by hand as opposed to the New York or the Paris one. It's supposed to crack like an old painting. Right. And for me, I would never have looked at it two years ago, but now I love it. I love that watch so much. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the rabbit hole I'm down in right now. <laughs> I wish you luck there. Thank you. <laughs> would Would you say vintage is still a primary focus for you regardless of the brand? Because we have seen you move into some modern stuff, but you do still have a vintage focus in, in some regard. Yeah, I, I, I think very much so that vintage is still um, a big part of what drives me to uh, look for like new exciting things like references. So now if I if I had to limit myself and, and say it, I would be partially like vintage Cartier and Paddock and then modern independent. That's that's how I would summarize the theme right now. But if I had to say vintage would still very, very much be a bigger portion, I'd say maybe 70%. I'm always interested in learning how collectors focuses shift, right? Like for me, I always keep a list, of course, of the things that I want, but I strictly go off of what speaks to me. And rarely do I buy something that actually was on my list. And I'm curious if that kind of ethos stands for you, or if, if you strictly go off, you know, the, the list that you have. Oh, that's such an interesting question because I do have a list. <laughs> we all do. I think we all do. And when something comes up on the market that's on that list, I can't lie. I do gravitate towards, you know, of course, trying to find out more about the watch. And um, if everything checks out, I, I have to say, like, of course, I'm tempted to, to go for it if it's the right timing and everything is, um, is working out well. So actually, I have crossed a few off of my list. The most recent one I did cross off was um, a white gold uh, 2526 from Paddock. Yeah, that thing's insane. Yeah, I've had that watch on my list ever since I watched the Matt Jacobson talking watches. <laughs> and and that was, you know, that was um that was in 2019. That was in early I was gonna say that must have been at the beginning. Yeah, very beginning, if not earlier. If and I just remember without knowing much about the reference, I was drawn to how it looked. And after, you know, research, I knew that it was difficult and, and, and um, rare to find it in white because most of my pieces are indeed in white. It's just what I find more, more wearable. I did go and, and look for it and some did pop up, but it was way out of my reach. Um, and I think I got lucky 
with this one i did pick up at an auction um maybe people just you know weren't particularly interested in the reference that day and uh i i, I think i got pretty lucky with it as a student at arguably the most prestigious ivy league school there is how do you find time to collect so when I did collect, it was during COVID. So good thing I wasn't in school. I took uh, two years off. <laughs> so I, did, I, I had time. But you see now, like I'm back in school and that's why it's been difficult um, for me to, yeah. to, to arrange things and, and uh, take photos and, and whatnot. But I'm a senior now. I think at this point, you know, you've been in school for so long. You kind of have a sense of what you're doing. And um, I would not have tempted this if I were like a sophomore or even junior. Um, so I think the timing, timing worked out. But in terms of, you know, the environment at school, I have to say recently I was approached in DM by uh, a fellow student and we met up for coffee and, and she was very interested in watches. And uh, I was telling her, you know, a couple spots to check out in, in Boston. And it's really nice. And I learned through her that there's a watchmaker actually on campus and he made his own watch. So we're going to plan. Yeah, we're going to plan for a time to meet. I think he's also like a member of the Horological Society in New York. So, you know, before when I was collecting, it was just myself in Canada. But um, ever since coming back to the States last year, it's been great. I, I, I really, really, it's, it's, it's a totally different experience. I, I love when you post a photo on your story or in class in a Harvard lecture hall, rocking like a black ceramic Royal Oak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was going to ask you what the collector community is like at Harvard, or if you're noticing other students wearing interesting watches? No, yeah, definitely. I have noticed some steel Rolex sport models. So like uh, Datejust and, and, and subs. I've noticed some vintage uh, Universal Genevs. Interesting. And, you know, I, I really regret not reaching out to that person because I saw him like across the um, hall at a coffee shop and I saw it was a two-registered chrono and I really wanted to ask, but I just didn't. Um, <laughs> so, but anyways, I, I I did see that on campus. Um, but other than that, you know, you don't really look at what people are wearing on their wrist. And for me, sure. you know, um, I don't wear a watch every day to class. Uh, sometimes when I do wear one, it's usually, you know, very, most of my watches are pretty understated. So So things that are not, very loud um so like the black ceramic like nobody nobody gives a second look to a black watch or or a vintage calatrava something along that regard you said in an article on a collected man that your approach to watch collecting echoes the pottery making process chiefly requiring four qualities patience self-understanding an eye for detail and open-mindedness do all four of these have to hit in order for you to add something to your collection? Wow. I forgot I said that. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you regretting it immediately? No, 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 no. Please remind me. So what did I say? Patience, eye for detail. Patience, an eye for detail, self-understanding, and open-mindedness. I think this was, I probably said that 
during a time when I was under self-revelation <laughs> because that sounds great. I don't think I would, I would be able to come up with that now if you asked me. Um, I think, I, I mean, remind me, like, I don't know when that uh, interview was, but it was probably during COVID, uh, like yeah. the early, early stages of COVID. And that was when I was chasing after quality and rarity. Like I, at sure. one point, condition for me was everything. If the dial had one scratch, I would be reluctant to buy. It, it was just how I was. But now, you know, I think that more applies to open-mindedness. I think now I'm more open-minded in that regard. So to answer your question, I still think that all four would ap apply. Patience, definitely a lot more. I'm, I'm so patient yeah, now. But I would say like sometimes patients probably, you know, maybe once in a blue moon doesn't plan as a factor if something just comes across your table that you didn't realize that you wanted, you know, the, the patient's part is, is completely taken out. A hundred percent. And I've had cases when something was offered and, and I was too late because I wanted to take more time to think about it. And by the time I was ready, the watch was sold. That's the worst feeling. Another worst feeling is, um, you know, when you scroll through other people's feed, especially like dealers' feeds, and uh, you see something that you've longed for, and it was posted like uh, a year ago, and you and you were aware of that reference, but it wasn't something that you wanted back then, and you're slapping yourself saying, "Oh, I wish, how oh, I wish I could, you know, go back and then reach out when they posted it." I feel like that one happens the most often. Yeah, yeah, I think it's an easy thing for us to relate to. Um, so I agree with you. Something sometimes patience does backfire, um, but what can you do? Yeah. What's your philosophy on parting with watches in your collection? Is there, you know, like a one in one out, or how long does it take for something to not be worn for you to say, okay, now it's time to get rid of this? That's another great question. I have to admit, I tried so hard like i gave an actual effort to try to abide by the rules of one and one out it's impossible and i couldn't do it but you know it's it was a, it was a challenge that i knew i just had to try and if i failed then at least i know that i tried but i can't do it it's too difficult uh, some people can which i applaud them but for me you know most of the time when I, when I part with something is, is usually one of two reasons. First, which is the most often reason, um, is when I don't wear it. I don't have the opportunity or the environment or the setting to wear something. So that's when I usually would part with it because I would just like look at my watch box and if that has not been worn and I know that it hasn't been worn, I would <laughs> consciously be like, oh, you need to wear that because you haven't worn it. But then when I wear it out, I'm like constantly reminding myself, okay, the reason why you're wearing it right now is because you feel bad and that stresses me out even more. Yeah. So, so then, I, then it makes sense for me to let it go. So that's the thing that happens the most frequently. And then the second reason is uh, something that we talked about earlier. When something in your collection 
you bought it at a time when nobody really cared about it. Nobody knew what it was. So you kind of had this, you know, special thing between you and your watch. And it was kind of like a, if you know, you know type. And you, and you felt a sort of intimacy between that. And then all of a sudden, when everybody starts chasing after the same thing, that kind of stirs up the tranquility that you had before. And in my mind, that's when I think, okay, maybe it's time to, you know, move on and and try to find something else. And I said this to a friend the other day, not the other day, but like a while ago. And they were like, oh, you, you just want to be made feel special. Is that why? And I, and I thought about it. And I said, you know, that's interesting, but it really is not that case. My first intuition was, oh yeah, maybe, maybe that is, that is why. But I actually took the time and I thought about it. It's not that I just want to feel special because I don't know, like what would made to feel special mean like you 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 post something and then I don't know like maybe you can let me know I I still I don't think I can still I I thought about it thoroughly enough but I don't think it's it's that it's just my there's something inside of my head I, I I want to feel intimate with something that not everybody knows about or cares about for that matter but it's not about being special no, it's definitely not. And I don't think it's anything even even along the lines of, oh, too many people have this now, so I don't enjoy wearing it as much. I don't think it's that either. I think what happens is with social media that if if 25 other people are posting the same watch that you've been in love with, that you were one of the only people that had it and cared about it, when you're constantly seeing something each and every single day, it becomes less and less exciting to you. Yeah. Like this week at Watches and Wonders, it's very exciting for all of us because we're all seeing all of these for the first time. Yes. But in a couple months, when the ADs start pushing their watches out to everybody and we start seeing all the ones that we loved as releases from Watches and Wonders, we're going to be less and less excited about them. Yeah. It's true. That's my theory. You know, like I'm already, I, I I was in love with the, of course, new Tank Normal on the platinum bracelet, but I'm getting sick of watching videos of people post about it. <laughs> as much as I love it, it's great, but I keep going back to Arrow's Instagram to look at his vintage ones. Can we just talk about that Tank Normal for a very quick second? <laughs> We should. We should. It, it, it's only right that we, we talk about it for at least a minute. So I knew that they were coming out with a Tech Normal for quite some time. And I was, of course, very excited to, to look at the final lounge. I think they could have done a little bit better uh, job with the dial because I think it, it, w- it did not provide as much contrast, in, um, especially on the Platinum one. But I, I think they killed the Seven Link vintage inspired bracelet. I think I would just buy that watch for that bracelet. You know, like if it had to go down to that, Um, of course, the watch itself is great. They tried, uh, you can tell that they tried, um, you know, very hard to stick with the original dimensions and it was just only slightly larger. But I did have one problem with it. And maybe you can make me feel better in that regard, where maybe, you, you know, what I say will resonate with you. 
it's the numbered edition thing. So, you know, when they first started the CPCP collection, they did a hundred pieces. And then for the hundredth anniversary of the um, Centre, they did 150. And I remember there was this debate on Instagram when people found out that they were doing a 150, people were like, oh yeah, like why, but why, why 150? Wouldn't it make more sense? Um, of course, like Cartier wants to do more, but uh, for the sake of this watch and its historical provenance and its life, it would make more sense to just be a numbered edition out of 100. And then for the pebble, okay, 150. And then all the other pieces, okay, one 100. And then this this year, excluding the skeletons, because I don't really, you know, look at the skeletons, but the traditional versions, they came out with four. The strap versions and the bracelet versions. And the strap, they made 200. And the bracelet, they, they made uh, 100 or 150? I think 100. 100, yeah. And that's what I don't, like, of course, I understand from a business perspective, of course, they want to make more. But at this point, I just think it's lost the romanticism a little bit by them just keep on increasing the numbered additions. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, I also don't love the dial. I don't love the crystal on it. The bracelet is as perfect, I think, as they could have possibly gotten it. The case to me seems a little like squattier than a tank, a regular tank normal. Like it doesn't have that elegance that exudes from a vintage tank normal, even though it's very similar dimensions. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the numbered thing bothers me because I love looking at Aura's page and seeing some of these cloches that he has that are like one of two. And obviously they're not going to do one of two pieces or something like that, but there's no rhyme or reason to the numbers that they choose. And I don't quite understand, like if anything, why are you doing 200 pieces of the strap version? Yeah. I don't understand. That doesn't make sense to me. I think the CPC, CPCP versions should all be, either more limited or not limited or yeah, more limited or not limited <laughs> yeah. because I don't, the, the hundred pieces doesn't make sense. 150 pieces doesn't make sense unless there's a significance with the anniversary, then that specific number makes sense. Yeah. But I think that watch is going to be 60 to 65 K and there's a lot of Cartier collectors out there that have an amazing collection of Cartier that will never go and spend $65, 65 thousand dollars on those pieces and they're the ones that should be appealed to and asked you know would you like to buy this watch in my opinion yeah i agree with everything you just said i digress but it's a beautiful watch and it, it is you know. it is I'm, I'm sure they've they're all sold out um at this point after the there's a lot of press. other cartiers i'd rather have for 60k yeah no i would go vintage i would go vintage for sure yeah 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 100 yeah, percent Beautiful watch. Um, I think for trying to be modern, they executed the watch itself 80% of the way. Yeah. Yeah. But but good for them that they're bringing back from their roots. You know, a lot of brands could be doing similar things, but they are not. No doubt. I think the Pebble was maybe one of the better releases that they did in terms of a watch and keeping its um, integrity and not messing with it too much. You know, maybe they upped the size a little bit, but other than that, I think 
they really did the least amount with that. And I think it turned out the best for them. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I still haven't seen it in person. Me either. I'm sure I'd see it and think it's too big. It is too big. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm, I'm sure that that's what I would think. But anyway, back to you. So your collection varies with everything from vintage Patek Philippe to Richard Mill and Acrivia now. Why do you think it's important for collectors to open their eyes to different brands and, and eras of watchmaking and diversifying their collection? Well, I wouldn't say it's important. I, I, I just think that one should do what one's heart tells them. And, and it's, it's a living entity, you know, the taste changes. For me, I started with vintage Cartier and, and it took me a little bit before I was brave enough to enter Paddock. But once I got into Paddock, I was just kind of enthralled by the history and the beauty of the movements and everything. And that became my number one obsession, if you will. But of course, with the prices of some of these models, it's become kind of stupid to 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 spend on a watch so that's when you know when you start seeing more interesting things being offered by independents or smaller or uh, big big or small you know it does make you think okay what do i want to add to my collection that i have yet to experience and that might actually diversify it because i have um, some like watches of the same reference, but just different dials, which I love, but there's that whole other side of experience that I'm missing out in terms of independence. And I've been fortunate enough to travel to Geneva a few times to meet with these independents, such as Acrivia and uh, Peter Mbadat and uh, Laurent Ferrier. And I love talking to the people behind the brand. So in a way, it's of course, also supporting them. And when you are just looped in with what they're doing or developing in the backside, you can't help but feel excited for them and, and want to be a part of that. So I, I do think, you know, if, if someone wants to diversify the experience that they can derive from their collection, you can have a variety of tastes, but who am I to say, you know, someone can have only vintage Cartier or only vintage Rolex and and that's all they care about. And I think that's great. I think it takes a lot of knowledge and experience to do that. And I don't think I'm comfortable or confident in myself to do that just yet. Um, Maybe in five years, I will pick one brand or one model to focus on. But for now, uh, I just want to see more uh, different things and, and, and experience them in different ways. Absolutely. And and something that you mentioned just before is like having the same watch, but in a different dial color. And something that you've grown to love are complicated Patek Philippe's perpetual calendar, split seconds, etc. You do own two 3970s, a white dial and a black dial. But you also have a 5004 with a black dial. And I'm curious to know the collecting philosophy that you have for having both of those being that they're so similar yet so different, uh, that being the, the black dial 3970 and the black dial 5004. Was it just like both came up or were you after black dials for both? Or 
so um <laughs> 5004 it was kind of like a grail reference for me <laughs> and oh it's it's incredible yeah and and when i when one did come up i i bought it and it's just the thickness of that watch makes it so difficult to wear. I don't know if you've seen one or, or held one in, in, in person, but it might be better if that watch were on a closed back, which that watch did not have. Um, the watch is on a sapphire crystal, which adds to the the height of the watch. So in that regard, you know, of course, it's a different watch, even though it has a similar face and similar case, but the complication is completely different and maybe like 10 times more difficult to to build. Sure. But I like the 5004, yes, from a design perspective and because it's small and I like smaller watches, but more so because the 5004 is kind of considered a black horse reference of Paddock, you know? Paddock never had the intention of adding a split second mechanism on top of the 2310, which was already, you know, highly modified upon the perpetual calendar modules and whatnot. So a lot of the 5004s that did come out or were produced earlier on, they were broken. And that's why, you know, Paddock made so few of them is because they would not work. And that's why, it's so interesting that uh, some of them, you know, are working well, but I've heard stories where people would buy them double sealed and when they open it up, it's just broken and they would need to send it back to Paddock for an uh, overhaul. Oh my God, that is devastating. Yeah, so a lot so a lot of those watches did not work properly or function, function-wise. Um, but there's just something beautiful about that. I cannot deny that there is fault to such a legendary reference. And of course, you know, with the 5204, which they developed very soon after the 5004, everything's fine with that. Um, with their in-house caliber. So in that regard, you know, the black dial 5004 versus the 3970, sure, it's completely different. With regard of the two 3970s, I have a silver dial and a black dial, and they're the exact same watch. Um, but the cases are actually different. Um, and many people don't know that. Different series? Yes, different series. So the silver dial is second series, and those cases back then were still made by hand and hand soldered on. But when it came to, um, I think, like the fourth series of the 3970s, and even the cases of 5004s, they're not handmade. So they're made by CNC machines, I would presume. So if you look at auction experts, when they talk about the lugs of a 2499, they would usually say, oh, yeah, the step on the lugs is so sharp that it's never been polished. So that stands true with the first series 3970 and even the second series. But when you look at the cases of the 5004 or the black dial 3970 that I have, which was produced in the 2010s, all of them were made by uh, machines. So, and I did not know that when I first got that 3970, which is before I got the 5004, it was marketed to me as brand new or like new. You know, when I first saw it, I was like, oh my God, this is evidently polished because the lug, the step is not as evident or or uh, prominent as, as, as the second series. 
And later on did I find out that, okay, it's just completely different cases, uh, case <laughs> process. So I thought the watch was polished or over-polished. It just turned out it was different. Amazing. We never know what we're going to you know, sell from our collections or fall in and out of love with. But knowing that you view the 5004 as absurdly thick and a little bit difficult to wear, do you picture it as a watch that you'll always keep? If you had to make that decision right now, oh, it would be a dream to own a 5004A, like a steel 5004. I think because it's such a heavy watch as well. I think if I owned a 5004A, I would very much wear it. But for the G and um, in platinum or in gold, I don't see that as a watch that I would own for. The rest of my life. So if I, you know, see something interesting or like a vintage paddock and I had to sell something, I would definitely, between the 3970 and the reference 5004, I would probably sell the 5004 and keep my 3970 to fund a potential prop purchase. Got it. That's what I had figured, but. Yeah. So when it comes to collecting, and we kind of spoke about this as you know, not wearing something enough and and having to get rid of it. Do you think that there could ever be too much of a good thing? You know, do you ever look at your collection and get worried when you're getting ready to add another piece that you're going to do that just to wear something a little bit less? Does that ever worry you? You're asking all great questions because these are all, you know, things I, I, I would think before. I'm pulling at the heartstrings here. Yeah, before making a purchase. It does. It does worry me. And it actually um, annoys me a little bit. If that's a strong word, I apologize. So for me, you know, I don't, I, I don't obsess over possession. So for me, I derive more f- enjoyment and, and feeling out of when I see a watch that fits in a certain role of my life. So I have dress watches, but... Each dress watch would be different. I can see myself wearing them and enjoying them in a different environment. But when I do buy something that I think is better than the one that I currently have in my collection that does the same thing or serves the same role, I think after a while it would start worrying me that I haven't worn one of them. And that's when I would consider you know, maybe moving it on or trading it towards something else. I'm kind of in that predicament right now. Oh yeah? Tell me. Yeah. So I have a reference five five zero six six A Aquanaut. Yeah. And I have a sixteen seven fifty GMT Pepsi in my collection. And I adore both. I wear both. But I really, really love the Aquanaut. 5164A. And I think it's like a perfect culmination of the two that I have, being that it is, you know, a travel time Aquanaut and, you know, with the GMT function. And then I have my Aquanaut that I love. So I'm in the predicament of like, I was talking right here. (laughs) (laughs) I would say go for the 5164A. (laughs) Yeah. You're actually the only person. Oh, really? Has said that so far. Everyone's like, no, keep the two vintage or, you know, your two vintage are so much cooler, the vintage charm. And I'm like, I I, I don't disagree. 
the only thing is, would you find the 5164 too big? I don't necessarily think so. You know, like I'll wear, I'll wear a Patek 3796, which is 30 and a half or 31 millimeters. And I'll wear a Speedmaster, which is 42 millimeters, you know? Okay. I'm, I'm comfortable with wearing bigger, smaller. I like kind of having a diversification in the collection. Um, obviously, the 5164 comes in at like 40. Point eight yeah. millimeters, and now we're really nerding out on details. But yeah. um, I don't know. There's just something so interesting about that watch, and it really being a culmination of the two. And I'm like, like well, I obviously can't give both the same amount of wrist time. So if I combine them into one, would I get a lot more joy? So this is how I think about it, right? First of all, for like just an everyday watch, I don't think you can beat it because the GMT, like the Pepsi is on a bracelet, right? And I don't know like if you like bracelets or not, but for me, I don't own that many bracelet watches because I think they're so easily like scratchable and I would much rather to wear uh, a watch like on a rubber strap sometimes. The good thing about like the 5164 also is there's so many strap options that are available for Aquanauts. I feel like you cannot get tired of it. And also another thing, (laughs) Just after looking at the new releases from Paddock, oh my God, what are they doing? I know. It, it, it makes me, I think you cannot go wrong with a 5164 after looking at what they're put, putting out. I agree. I agree totally. So that's what I'm thinking. But Yeah. And my, my other thing is, is like my wife got me a lovely vintage Explorer 2 uh, polar dial for when we got engaged, which is virtually a GMT. Um, yeah. So I, I don't necessarily need both. Yeah. So now I'm just talking myself into it. <laughs> well, let me know what you decide. <laughs> It'll be a while before you finally decide, I'm sure, but. Yeah, I, I'll let you know. Yeah. So in 2022, GQ named you one of the top five watch collectors. So. Oh my God. <laughs> so with all that pressure, where do you expect your collection to go from here? Or are there any fun incomings that you can share with us? Uh, I don't think I'm going to be named again. <laughs> 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 um, but but uh, in all honesty, like that's very kind of them to, to say. Um, and it's, you know, it's an honor to be with the people who are on that list. I mean, Aura, Roni. But for, for me right now, I'm in such a, I'm on such a tangent right now that I don't, I can't even make sense of it myself. Um, <laughs> well, I think the perfect answer is your Acrivia and the Richard Mill that you got. <laughs> I think those two are the perfect definition of your tangent. Oh, that, that is one tangent, but I would say a bigger tangent of mine right now are just obscure vintage references with cool case designs. And and I have yet to I've yet to share them on Instagram. I've got a few recently. Um, I'm wearing one right now. Nobody knows the references of, and you can't even find much information about them. But I those are the best. Yeah, well, yeah, it's you can argue it that way. But you know, I love it. I, I love looking at the case construction. So that's the tangent I'm on right now. I, I'm, I'm sure I'll share some um, in the next few weeks or months. But I recently picked up, I guess, on the topic of incoming, I picked up uh, two vintage paddocks 
they're both rose gold with a black dial. And they're just, I mean, you can't tell what they are, even if you look at them. They're just, but the, so one has hooded lugs and the, the other one kind of has um, like a sandwich case shape um that has like three steps it it is wild and and nobody pays attention to them and i think you know people should i guess because they're such great watches and relatively affordable so that's that's my incomings i love that that's great so i guess yeah so i guess to summarize like small cool case design vintage pieces that that's my tangent right now but then of course independence but it's not you know you can get a reshare mail every two months or something um <laughs> so so but but um fingers crossed like knock on wood um they did tell me that i'm on the back order of something that i've been wanting for um since like 2019 um so i guess almost four years um, and they told me that I I should be receiving it soon, but who knows? We'll we'll, we'll see when it happens. Fingers crossed. Yep, yep, for sure. I want to make sure we talk about your podcast, uh, the waiting list, and you and your podcast team are approaching 150 episodes, which is amazing. So, congrats to you. <laughs> it's wild. Any plans for the waiting list beyond the podcast? Not really. I think it's wild when you put it like that, like 150 episode. It's such a special thing to me because, I mean, I connected to those two via the podcast the most, and we've become such great friends, and it's gotten me through COVID. Like, I was living by myself, and it was just nice to turn on the camera and talk about whatever that comes to mind. And we're, we're fortunate to have um, invited people onto the podcast who – share that wild side with us. I mean, we're not the most PG if you've listened to a few episodes and actually sure hopefully you'll, you'll come on as well. <laughs> I would I would love to. Yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll have a great chat. But, you know, it's just one of those things that I'm, I'm fortunate to have. Um, in terms of plans, because we're in different continents and different parts of the world, I still have yet to meet those two. So um, <laughs> we're thinking like we have been discussing potentially doing some video format or like short clips of our recordings, but you know, nothing in the plan so far, but yeah, it, it, it's just great. And it's actually, you know, a completely different experience from what we are having right now. I feel like I'm so zenned out right now. But then when, <laughs> when we're recording, like the energy levels are through the roof, you know? Yep. Um, so so you must come on and, and we'll share that with you. <laughs> I would love to. All right, Jack, let's finish up here with the collector's gene rundown. And um, I know that you collect a few different things like ceramics and sneakers which I would love to have you back on to talk about those two things for sure. But Mm -hmm. you can answer these next questions based on any of the things that you collect. Sure. All right. What's the one that got away? Maybe you missed it at auction or one that, you know, was in your collection that you let go of that you wish you never did. Oh, sneakers. Definitely sneakers. (laughs) (laughs) I I was forced. Some of the values are crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I started collecting sneakers when, none of this kind of, I mean, there were obviously sub circles, but uh, not 
not this crazy. I, I, I was fortunate to have had some really rare stuff. I don't know if anybody will, will know, but but um, with NikeSB in particular, um, there's a really famous kind of city pack, and I guess you could consider that as the 2499 or the 1518s of Paddock, or like a Paul Newman Daytona, you know? So those are really rare stuff, and they made four uh, shoes. They made the Paris Dunks, they made the Tokyo, they made the London, and they made the New York Pigeons. Those four were the city pack. And I, you know, I, 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 had the pleasure of owning um the tokyo uh, one tokyo dunk one london uh dunk and two parises and of the four the most valuable were by far the paris dunks and i had you know i I was lucky enough to have owned two one was dead stock and one that i did wear that was smaller size because i was real i was more young um but you know i have big feet i'm pretty i'm pretty tall but I, I traded those away for stupid money. And recently I saw one dead stock size 10 sell for like 120 K and I'm just like, me? no, I wish I were. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that, that would be one that got away. And, and that's just like one example. You know, I had some of the most, I had a unreleased yellow lobster dunk low from concepts. I think those released in 2010 and I bought that for, you know, on eBay for stupid money for like a pair of regular sneakers. And now um, they're going for like that stock. So brand new condition um, in the size that I owned. Uh, you can find them like in that stock for like 50K. Oh my um, gosh. So can you imagine if I had, and that's just, you know, two. I, I, I own some more cooler ones that I just sold. I sold a lot of sneakers to fund watches as well. But if only I kept them, you know. Who yeah, knew? you could, you could, you could get a lot done with that. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about the on deck circle for you? What's next for you in your collecting? And this could be in any of the categories. Uh, for me, I I think I'm done with sneakers for a little bit. I still collect, but not you know not as intense as what what I did before. For me, it would be some. Uh, some some watch um and i'm i I have to i have to go back to my previous answer which is you know weird architectural case-shaped watches i would love what roni has like the jebel bear oh yeah if i can find one yeah a question on sneakers um has your interest fallen from those a little bit because you're collecting two other things now being watches and ceramics that you use for their purpose, right? Watches, you wear them. Ceramics, you display them. Sneakers, you're supposed to wear them. But when you collect them, a lot of times you don't want to wear them because it could deplete the value. Is that a reason maybe why you're uh, as uninterested? Yeah, I think so. And, and and that's, I wouldn't call that the main reason. I think the main reason would just be like they're so expensive now that if I were to spend the same money, I think I would get more enjoyment out of watches. But that's also another um, partial reason. And now, you know, I feel like sneakers is just so hyped that I I just I just buy what I like and I wear them now. And I don't buy anything like insanely wild or, or crazy. Um, I bought a few um, new balances recently, like the collabs that they did. 
and um and I just wear them and and I I still like them but I would not stock them anymore as I did before. All right, how about the unobtainable? So this is one that's too expensive in a museum or a private collection that you just can't have. <laughs> um oh god, have It was the 5004 and now you have it. Yeah, it ha- no, it has to be another watch. Of course. I'm not so obsessive over complications now. I think I was a year ago. I'm still obsessed over like split seconds because I think it's a like a magical thing. But now like I would kill for just a vintage 96 Calatrava. One that is I don't know, a unique dial in the paddock museum every time i go to geneva i would go to the paddock museum and every time i go i would just oof if i could if i could choose one (laughs) you know i but i would i would have such a headache over because i don't know which one to choose um but i think i i love the 96 i i love the 96 yeah and a lot of them are ridiculously overpriced not overpriced but a lot of them are ridiculously expensive i should say they are so I opted for the 3796 just because it's way more affordable. Same dimensions. Well, and you also have a very good version of the 3196. <laughs> I got lucky. Yeah, you did. I, I, which I would also opt for that. Like if given a regular vintage 96 versus that, 100%. But I mean, just looking at what is going to come up at Philips Hong Kong, um, that watch kind of broke the internet. A little bit for sure and so i think people collectors are going back to smaller watches and and i think for good reason the watch doesn't have to be demanding in size to be enjoyed i think there's a lot to be said and unsaid about wearing a small watch couldn't agree more all right the page one rewrite so if you could collect anything besides your current collections money no object what would it be Oh, if I could collect anything. I'm taking a class on Imperial China right now at school. And some of the old like scroll paintings that we've- Aren't those incredible? Yeah. But but I mean, if money were no issue, that is. Um, Yeah. I I just love old things. And like- I, I would love to collect, you know, either old scroll paintings or um, I don't know what it's called in English, um, but like old perfume bottles in the Song Dynasty that were made of jade and, and like edged in. I think they're beautiful. I think like one sold at auction for an insane amount of money, but just the intricate details that you see in those perfume bottles. And it was like really like niche, but something like that, you know, something from- Yeah, no, those are super interesting. Like all the old like cinnabar boxes. Yeah. And, you know, vases and like you said, perfume bottles. I I love all that stuff too. Yeah. And and I think I'm just like so obsessed with Song Dynasty history right now. Um, Like 
everything, how women had power and women were allowed to be in the royal courts to how um, the economy was flourishing and what the government instilled, like the policies. It's really interesting when you when you look into stuff like that. And, and me, you know, growing up in China, but I really grew up in Canada, I never had the opportunity to be in touch with my roots. So um, finally, you know, I have this one class where we're learning about Imperial Chinese history. I don't know. It's just something that I'm really enjoying right now. Love it. How about the GOAT for you? So who do you look up to in the collecting world? Uh, a few people. First and foremost... Mr. Aro Montanari. <laughs> I think he's been the most answered for that on this podcast. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, I, I've still yet to meet him or, or talk to him. Um, so I, I, would love, I would love to, you know, have that opportunity to chat with him one day. Um, another goat for me... I mean, of course, Roni, he, he, I call him the maestro. I call him my mentor, you know, <laughs> because I, I saw him on Talking Watches. And when I reached out, I never expected a reply. And so when he did reply, I was so shocked. And, and we had so much to say. I mean, now I know it's because the guy lives on Instagram. Like he does not sleep. <laughs> does not. Yeah. But, but before when I didn't know him that well, I was just so, you know, I was, I was so, um, I appreciated his time that he took out to answer my questions and guide me in so many ways. Really great guy and, and kind-hearted individual. Who else? May I say George Kramer? Um, I guess kind of a tribute in this sense. He and I, again, an individual I'd never met before. But when I started with, and again, it was with Vintage Cartier, I reached out to Gio and he responded with so much patience and and inquisitiveness and i remember the first trip i made to tokyo in hunt for watches and it was um in january in 2020 so right at the beginning i was at this vintage shop called uh private eyes which you know people listening if you plan to go to tokyo i'd highly recommend gotta go um yeah and I remember, you know, I was there looking for vintage Cartier and the the the, the owner uh, showed me this vintage tank platinum obus with a backwinding crown. And I'd never seen anything like it. So I took a photo and I showed it to Gio. And I was like, Gio, what on earth is that? And he said, oh, yeah, it's a vintage uh, obus with a backwinding mechanism, the uh the uh, movement is probably PK and um, or EWC. It's great. Thank you so much for sharing. And he was just like, oh, you should ask him for this or that. And I just remember like that was the first trip and I knew nothing. I was learning so much from him and he gave me so much time and, and patience. And we shared, you know, curiosities together. And I remember when I got my Oct uh, Octofenissimo, I messaged him because he has the same one. And we also bonded over that. I've never met the guy and I've never heard his voice even, but it was just, I, I was just so shocked by that. And I, I really hope that, you know, his family 
is in a is in a good place and and he has you know rested well but he has in many ways been one of the first mentors i reached out to on instagram yeah rest in peace to uh geo and condolences to his family um he was always so kind to me as well and generous with information and time and patience as you said as i think he was to everybody which is why um we were all probably very shocked this week to to hear that sad news so yeah on something more happy do you enjoy the hunt or the ownership more oh definitely the hunt (laughs) 100% you and I both yeah most importantly do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene I think collector's gene maybe hoarder's gene (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I, I think I, I have, you know, I always, you know, wanted to curate, like I had an, I just have this interest to curate something, uh, even with photography, you know, I, 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 I never really, um, even, you know, old childhood toys, I don't want to throw them out. So there is something to be said, I guess, with that with, I guess, holding on to small pieces of the past um, that tells a story, perhaps. Love it. Jacqueline, thank you so much for coming on and joining me today. Uh, It's always so great to chat with you. And I uh, look forward to seeing more ebbs and flows in your collecting. It's a pleasure. Let's let's now have you come onto the waiting list. You, you tell me when I'll be there. No, no, I no, we have to because it's completely different, and 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 I'll tell you more um, off recording. But thank you so much, Cam, for having me. This is um, wow. I'm I'm really relaxed right now. Uh, you, have a very, <laughs> Good, you have a really soothing voice. <laughs> thank you. And now, now you're ready for bed on the East Coast. Yeah, it's it's really great to listen to. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Take care. Yeah. Bye bye. All right, that does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to Collector's Gene Radio.